A little exciting week. Still exciting. Not over yet. You never know. You never know what God's going to do. But His sovereign will be done. I want you to turn over to the Gospel of John this morning. I want to talk to you. Um, and this doesn't just have to do with what's been going on this past week, but really this past year. <laughs> um, 2020 has been a year like none other. We have experienced more this past year, these past 11 months, than most people have experienced in their entire lifetime. Um, we had the pandemic, fear of the virus, death, shelter in place, social distancing, mass, um, closing a thriving economy, financial uncertainty, closing our churches, our houses of worship. Here in California, we had to deal with fires, noonday darkness, orange skies, <laughs> unhealthy air quality, and now this uncertain presidential election outcome. Um, I shared a portion of this on Wednesday night, and I said, after all that, you just kind of look up into the sky and you say, okay, Lord, what's next? <laughs> uh, because nobody likes uncertainty, if you're honest. You don't like uncertainty. You, you want to know what's going to happen. Um, nobody enjoys not knowing what tomorrow may bring. And certainly in the life of every, every Christian, there are times when we do feel blanketed by uh, God's presence, by our trust in God, and we feel completely secure that the Lord who loves and cherishes us, gave his own son for us, will direct our every step. That's a clear teaching throughout Scripture, and we believe that. But if we're to be honest, as Christians, there are also those times in our lives when, frankly, God feels far away. He feels disengaged. Uh, he feels, um, we feel as if he's uninterested in us. Or maybe it's vice versa, we're not interested in him. And there are times when our faith flounders, we're unsure what may happen next, we're unable to determine uh, what ought to come next because it's out of our hands. Um, times when we don't even know what questions to ask or which door to knock on or walk through. And we ask the question, why isn't God helping us find clarity or help us feel protected or help us feel natured, uh, nurtured? Um, I mean, what does God think when we lay awake on our bed wondering things? You know, will I get that special email I've been waiting for, that promotion, that loan, get that class? Will God, this dream house that I've wanted all my life, be fulfilled, whatever? Whatever you've been wanting. Should I move? Should I stay? Um, do I want to have children or not? How long do I wait before I take a different path with my career? And yes, who will win this election? <laughs> See, sometimes we are uncertain about how to proceed with our lives. Because external circumstances that we can't control are beyond us. And we don't know how to move on because it's not resolved. We're waiting to hear if we will get that interview or if that test result from the doctor will be favorable or unfavorable or if our proposal will be accepted by the boss, whatever it might be. 
See, in those moments, there's truly nothing that we can do to affect what happens next other than go to the Lord in prayer. Um, We don't know what's going on. And like a family member waiting for a loved one to come out of a risky surgery, it's unbearably hard to be the one who's waiting, isn't it? Who's hoping, who's trying to plan the next step with no solid game plan on how to proceed because we don't have all the information. And that's the thing about uncertainty, isn't it? It's, it isn't over when it's over. <laughs> so what's a Christian to do when they feel the world that they know caves in? Or what is he to do in that great day of trouble that we've all probably been in at one point in life? It's not really an idle question because although we don't always like to think about it, our lives are filled with troubles. This isn't anything new. We've all dealt with a myriad of troubles in our own lives. We've prayed for those troubles. We've told the body those troubles at times. Um, Disappointment is a trouble, is it not? And there are many disappointments in life. That's just the way it is. Uh, We're disappointed sometimes with ourselves, to be honest, because we're not always what we want to be. Sometimes we want to be strong, but we find ourselves very weak. We want to be successful, but we find our life filled with many failures. We want to be liked, but sometimes people are indifferent to us. We're also disappointed with other people at times. Maybe with a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter, a friend, an employer, a partner, an employee. Whatever the case may be, disappointment fills our life. Also, circumstances can be cause for concern, cause for trouble. In some cases, we can do something about our circumstances, and we try to, but it's not always the case. Um, Poverty cannot always be changed in someone's life. And poverty is troubling, frankly. The loss of a loved one, that's a troubling experience to go through. That's beyond our control. It's devastating. So is the loss of a job, or so is sickness. See, even uncertainty about what the future holds can be troubling. What about those spiritual troubles? (laughs) When it seems as if the Lord's presence is withdrawn from us and we feel like we're plunged alone into a well that's been described as the, the dark night of the soul. What are we to do with those circumstances? What are we to do with despair? What are we to do with disappointment? Well, the answer is simple for the believer. The answer is simple for the Christian. The answer is that we are to take ourselves in hand, and by a deliberate exercise of the mind, strengthen our faith in the God we claim to be our Lord and Savior. We're to think of Him and so overcome trouble by reminding ourselves of the power, of the promises, of His faithfulness, 
of everything that he promises to us as we trust in him each and every day. And this morning, as we look at our our text in John 14, our text really calls us to become strong believers, strong Christians. Not the kind who weep and wail and expect everyone to have pity on them, but rather the kind who are of great stature of faith and who are a source of strength to others. That's what we're called to be. And so when we see our our text here, I want us to, to understand what Jesus is speaking to. And so let's read John chapter 14, verses 1 to 6. You've been sitting for a little bit, so stand up for the Word of God, and then you can have a seat after we're done. John chapter 14, verses 1 to 6. John writes, Jesus is saying this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Verse 4, and you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus, in verse 6, says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless it to our hearts and encourage us this morning as we trust in you. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So he says there, do not let your hearts be troubled. How are we to deal with this? Um, Personally, you know, when I'm in a, a troubling situation, when I'm in a situation that I can't wrap my mind around. Um, I shared this on Wednesday night. First of all, I deal with the negative aspect of it, whatever it might be. And I just accept the negative. Um, And it's got me through some pretty tough times in life. Accept the negative first when you don't know what's going to happen. Look at it and become familiar with the worst possible outcome, the worst possible scenario of a given, say, given situation, and then say, you know what, God, I'm going to trust you through this. Work through all the consequences of that in your head. And then come to a proper understanding that God will give you the grace to embrace whatever the outcome of a given situation. Because he, last time I checked, he's still on the throne. Amen? He's not going to allow things to happen to us that are outside of his will. So we we need to remind ourselves to continually place our trust continually and consistently in Him. I think of verses like 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety, what? On Him, it says, because why? He cares for you. Think about that. The God of the universe, the God who created us, the God who provided salvation for us, cares for us individually. He cares for us. And so he says, because I care for you, give me all your stuff. (laughs) Lay it upon my shoulders. So accept the negative. But then secondly, what I do is I go through an exercise of considering the positive. (laughs) Once you've come to embrace a positive negative outcome to anything, um, everything else is just, you know, gravy on on the mashed potatoes or whipped cream on the sundae or whatever you want. 
Um, but I, I want to share with you one thing that we should not allow to happen. And we all go there. We all have this temptation. The one thing we should not allow to happen is panic. Panic. Because what is panic? Panic is fear, right, paralyzing us. Fear paralyzing us. And fear is simply a lack of trust in God's care for you and me. And God's Word instructs us over and over not to be anxious. And, And so fear is often our immediate response to what? To uncertainty. And uh, there's nothing wrong with experiencing fear. It's a God-given emotion. And it's a much-needed emotion. But when that fear controls you to the point that it interferes you lacking trust in God, uh, then it becomes anxiousness or worry or sin. And so the key dealing with fear is that you don't get stuck there. You don't get stuck there. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 to 7 says, Do not be anxious about everything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God in the peace of God, which what? Surpasses all understanding. You can't even understand it. It will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Or James chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Or in Matthew chapter 6, our Lord, verse 34, says, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. In other words, it's got enough to worry about. Stop worrying. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And this past week, I couldn't help thinking of how the disciples must have felt when Jesus said to them, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. A lot of times we're hard on the disciples, are we not? Oh, these guys, you know, they can't believe. Man, they're with Jesus. They saw all the miracles and they're still lacking in faith and everything. And we criticize them. But stop and think about it. If you were one of the disciples, you'd be right there with them. <laughs> your heart would be troubled as well. They've been through an emotional roller coaster with Jesus the, fa- the past few weeks. And up to this point, the disciples have been seeing this winning streak like no other, you might say. They've seen firsthand Jesus, their leader, perform incredible, miraculous works right in front of them, among the people. And what did that do? That, in turn, garnered tremendous support and an incredible following. They had all these people following Jesus and his disciples. And their messianic hopes had reached the peak when he rode into Jerusalem. You remember people just laying down their garments and praising him, and boy, they just thought, this is it. This is when it's going to happen. Jesus, our military leader, he's going to take them on. We can't wait. Well, Their hopes were quickly dashed when Jesus publicly announced his impending death. All the way back in John 12, 12, 24, he says, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What was he doing? He was forecasting his death to his disciples. Now, they didn't get it. 
But just to give you a little bit of perspective of what the disciples have been going through, I want you to follow along as I read chapter 13, because I don't think we can understand verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 14 until we understand the context in which we find Jesus and his disciples. And so in John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, you can just follow along or listen. It says, now before, this is the, the, the week, the passion week of Christ, the, pretty much the last week of his life. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, to go to the Father, notice Jesus knew this, the disciples didn't, they had no idea. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Verse 2, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came, verse 6, to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never, look at that, wash my feet and Jesus answered him, if, if I do not wash you, you will have no share with me. He's saying it's my way or the highway. Verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only then, but also my hands and my head. So we see pendulumic Peter, as I call him. He goes from one extreme to the other, right? He's just an emotional basket case. And, you know, that's what sometimes circumstances can do. But that's how he responded. Verse 11, for he knew, um, or verse 12, Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. Because they didn't, you know, the roads were dusty. They wore sandals when you came into somebody's home. It was just tradition that the host would have your feet washed. And the disciples were so busy Focusing on other things, they totally disregarded that whole practice. And so Jesus took upon himself to prove himself to be the servant that he was and started washing their feet. He says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. <laughs> for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. Verse 14. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done. It's an example of servanthood. It's not, it's not saying we just need to go around washing people's feet just for the sake of washing people's feet. He's using it as an illustration of servanthood. 
Verse 15, for I have given you an example that you should... Uh, that you should also do as I've done to you. Verse 16, truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Once again, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send him receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And after saying these things, look at what it says. Jesus was troubled in his spirit. He was troubled. Trouble didn't check itself at Jesus' life door. He was troubled. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at each other, uncertain. There's that uncertainty again, of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining, John, at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Verse 25, so that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Who is it, Lord? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Can you imagine the tension in the air? Who's it going to be? So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, look at what happened. Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. You see, they they had no no idea. They were sitting right there. They had no idea. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. And when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I mean, these are men who walked away from everything to follow their Lord and Savior, careers, families, businesses. They committed their lives to Christ. They were followed. He was their leader. Now he's saying, I'm not going to be here much longer. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? (laughs) What's the big secret? Tell us. And Jesus said to him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. 
And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? He's persistent, isn't he? Then he says this, I will lay down my life for you. Don't tell me I can't follow you. I'll, I'll do anything for you. Verse 38, Jesus said to him, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Like their fellow Jews, the disciples saw their Messiah as what? As a conquering king. They were looking at pure physical. They didn't see the spiritual side of things. They passionately believed that he was going to free Israel from the bondage of Rome and restore Israel to her sovereignty and her glory. And it was going to extend all over the world because, I mean, how could it not? Look at all the followers we have. Look at what Jesus' power can do. And so the concept of their leader, a dying Messiah, it had no place in their theology. It had no place in their thinking. So much so in Luke chapter 24, verse 21, it says, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, Luke 24, 21, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to, condemned to death, and crucified him, then it says this in verse 21, but we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. In other words, their hopes were dashed. See, these disciples had forsaken everything to follow Jesus. And now it seemed, apparently, that what? He was forsaking them. Matthew 19, 27 says, Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything, Lord, and followed you. What then will we have if you leave? Kind of disheartened. All the events of that evening in the upper room added to the emotional turmoil that these guys were going through. They felt shame because they didn't do the foot washing thing correctly. They were dumbfounded to hear that one of them was going to betray Christ. They couldn't understand that. And then they were totally appalled when Jesus said, no, Peter, your leader is going to deny me three times, as a matter of fact. And they were probably also concerned because Jesus himself was troubled. He says so in the text. So when Jesus told them, do not let your heart be troubled, he was not telling them not to start being troubled. <laughs> he wasn't saying, I know you're okay now, but down the road some things are going to happen. Don't be troubled about it. He wasn't saying that. What the text indicates is that their hearts were already filled with trouble. They're overflowing with trouble. And what Jesus was telling them was, stop it. Stop allowing your hearts to be filled with trouble. That word trouble Terrasso means to shake up or to stir up. You know, think of in the mornings when you make your little protein shake. You know, you put it in the little plastic thing. You put the little wire whisk thing in there and you shake it up. And it mixes it up. That's, that's what it means. It's that kind of vigorous stirring up. We can even speak of mental or spiritual 
irritation. If you're anything like me, irritation has been part of your life this past week. <laughs> to a great deal, probably. Doesn't even matter who you voted for. It's just the whole process is irritating. The word is also used throughout the New Testament in the Bible. It's used of Herod in Matthew 2, verse 3. It says, when Herod heard, Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him as well. That same word. The disciples were troubled. It says in Matthew 14, 26, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. That's the word. They were troubled. It says they cried out in fear. Or in Luke chapter 24, verse 38, it says as they were talking about these things after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus himself stood among them and asked them, peace to you, verse 37, but they were startled and they were frightened. And they thought they saw a spirit. They couldn't conceive that it was the Lord. I mean, after all, he was dead. He was buried. In verse 38, And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? It's funny when we're faced with troubles, when we're faced with uncertainty, doubt just creeps in there, doesn't it? It just creeps in there. And even Jesus himself was troubled in John eleven thirty three, when he saw um, her weeping. It says, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Or in John thirteen twenty one, it says that he was troubled in his spirit. See, as always, Jesus knew what was in the disciples' hearts. He knew. He understood their confusion. He understood their concerns. That's why he's a compassionate savior, right? Uh, he sympathizes with us. He sympathizes with our sorrows. He sympathizes with our griefs, our misunderstanding, our concerns. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 to 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He understands but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us, it says, then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I mean, we speak of injustice. Think of the injustice Jesus faced. And even though the disciples were oblivious to his pain, he felt theirs. <laughs> In his hardest time of his entire earthly life, this last week, when he had to embrace all this stuff that was going to go down with him, he sought to comfort them. I mean, they had cause to be troubled, clearly. And we can't take a Pollyanna type of Christianity and apply it here, right? I mean, so many times people are going through troubles, whatever. Maybe it's the death of a loved one. Maybe it's the loss of a job or whatever. And what do we do? Oh, you know, Romans 8, 28. God works all these things together. Praise the Lord, brother. Go on. Well, that doesn't help. I mean, is that true? Sure, it's true. 
But that's probably the last thing someone who is dealing with turmoil and uncertainty needs to hear. Because there is such a thing as evil in the world. And you know what? What that verse is saying is that God will nevertheless accomplish his own good purposes in spite of that evil. I'm sure the disciples felt that, wow, this is not right. This guy didn't do anything and they're crucifying him on a cross. Now he's dead. Look at all the good he's done. They didn't understand. Because we don't always understand God's plan, God's purpose. So we don't want to take just a kind of Pollyanna Christianity look at it and say, well, God will work it. It's, it's, evil does exist. And troubles do come. And death is an enemy. So rather than denying those things, you have to take a realistic recognition of them. I mean, it was clear to Christ that from a human viewpoint, the disciples to whom he was speaking had great cause for agitation, for troubling in their heart. Because he himself understood it, because he himself was troubled. I mean, in and of itself, that is troubling. Can you imagine being with Jesus himself, the one who did all these miracles, walked on water, did all this stuff, healed all these people, fed thousands of people from a little bit of food, and you see all this stuff, and you have all these great hopes, and then he's troubled. I mean, that's part of their, probably the biggest part of why they were troubled, because their Savior was troubled. He who had calmed the sea. He who had found refuge in every hostile crowd and escaped. And why should he be troubled? And he said it before. He said it several times to them, but they didn't always get it. Well, now the message finally gets through. Wow, this guy's going to leave us. And now we're in turmoil. We're in trouble. He was their life. And for them... For him, they had left their family, their houses, their occupations, everything. And now he's leaving us? What? What do we do once you're gone? They want answers. They want them now. What could fill the void in their aching and anxious hearts? I mean, the disciples might have comforted themselves with Regardless of what might happen, they still loved him, and I'm sure they knew that he still loved them, and they would be faithful to him, or at least to his memory forever. But they they really weren't free to think things like that. I mean, they've just been told that one of their own is going to betray him. And then another one is going to deny him. They definitely had cause for trouble. And I think sometimes, even in counseling, when someone comes to you, comes to us with troubles, 
a lot of times it can almost seem dismissive because these are real issues that somebody's struggling with. And we don't want to minimize the issue. You, know, you don't want to say someone comes to you for counseling to say, well, well you know, it's not that bad. You can get over it. Don't worry about it. It's, it's almost dismissive. Instead, we have to hear the troubled soul out. We have to acknowledge that many of us deal with troubles. That's why Paul said in Romans twelve fifteen that we should mourn, right, with those who mourn. I mean, identify with their needs. So there was definitely cause to be troubled, but there's more cause not to be troubled. Because Christians are called to be realists, are we not? We're realists about life's problems. We don't play the escapism game. We have to understand that God has a purpose, God has power, God has a plan, and and we are subjective to that. So even though there may be cause to be troubled, there's greater causes not to be troubled. And this is really the meat of the message here. What are the reasons why we should not be troubled? Well, first of all, he says there in the first three verses. The very first verse, let not your hearts be troubled. Remember, this was what? This was Jesus. First, we know Jesus, do we not? As our Lord and Savior. He's God. He knows everything about us. He knows about our circumstances. He's able to deal with them. Therefore, there's every, every, every reason to trust him. I mean, this is what Jesus indicates when he issues the challenge. Look at what he says. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Stop being troubled. He says, believe in God. That's indicative. That's just saying the way it is. Yeah, we know you guys believe in God. That's what he's telling his disciples. But he says, believe also in me. He's attesting to his own deity. That's the the imperative mood. He's, He's saying, you need to trust in me. It's not necessarily speaking of a belief in salvation. It's talking about a trust. You know, we use that word even today when, hey, I trust you. What are you saying? I believe in you. I believe in your word. I believe you're going to do what you said you're going to do. I mean, why should the disciples be urged to believe in God in this situation? They already do. He's just stating that fact, but he's also saying, look, it's not going to get easy, but you need to trust me. Then my plan will be carried out. I mean, it's always good to be urged to trust in God. I mean, that's a good thing. But in this situation, the problem is that Jesus was about to be taken away from his disciples. And they were troubled by the thoughts of his parting. They didn't doubt that God would take care of them in some general sense. But they didn't understand how Jesus could go and how he could apparently be abandoning them. And so what does Christ 
say. It's as though he turns to his disciples and says, look, I know that you trust God. Trust me also. Precisely, in these circumstances, believe that I know what I am doing. (laughs) After all, I am God. And I'm going away, but I'm going away for a purpose. And that purpose will be accomplished. And that I will again return to you so that we can be together. And this is what he said to them in, in the face of his own execution. So they knew Jesus and they had every reason to trust him. And so do we, do we not? I would say we have even more cause than the first disciples. I mean, they stood on the, what, the far side of the resurrection, right? They didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know. They didn't know that the cross of Christ was the whole salvation thing, the resurrection was to follow. They didn't know that. We do. Did Jesus know what he was doing? I think so. Of course he did. Could he be trusted? Certainly. So then in our circumstances, everyday life, we need to also trust him. Whatever the circumstances, whatever the hardship, let us believe that he has a purpose in those circumstances and in Somehow he's most certainly working them out for our spiritual good. I mean, sometimes, I said this at the beginning of the pandemic when the church is closed. I said, sometimes God allows things to happen so that things are taken from us. So that we realize how much they're missed. (laughs) You know, we don't understand all the circumstances concerning our recent election. We don't understand what's going on. They have no idea. They don't even know what's going on. But God does. And God's plan will be carried out. I shared this with someone last week. I said, what if You know, we were talking about things, and I said, what if you could sit down with the Lord himself over breakfast? If you could do this. I mean, if he just waltz in physically, you sit down and eat some, say, bacon and eggs, but he probably wouldn't eat bacon, so, you know, some some eggs. (laughs) And you had a little chat with Jesus over coffee. And you said, do you have any questions? Well, Lord, yeah, I have a couple questions. What is your will concerning maybe a job, maybe the relationship, maybe a financial situation? Or Lord, what is your will concerning this election? He has one. It will be carried out according to his plan. The Bible clearly says that. My question to myself was if the Lord told me his will. (laughs) But it wasn't the answer that I wanted. (laughs) What would I do? You've got to be kidding me. What? (laughs) You want what? I mean, remember, you're talking to God, right? The one who knows the beginning from the end. The, The one who has our very best at his heart. Would we argue with him? 
I don't know. You know, when God tells you it's his will for something, there's not a whole lot of room for argument. Because either he's sovereign and he has a purpose and a plan or he doesn't. But the good news is, is we know him personally through his son. We know Jesus. We have every reason to trust him. He has our very best interest at heart, even though on the surface it may not look that way. Secondly, the second reason Jesus gives why we should not be troubled or gives to his disciples is that, hey, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Look at what he says in verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. And we sing that hymn, mansion over the hilltop and all that stuff. We have to understand we're not going to be all having a mansion. (laughs) We get a room within a mansion. (laughs) We're all in one house. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Matter of fact, I'm going there to prepare a place for you right now. Um, A lot of times when we talk about heaven for people, when they're going through turmoil and trial and troubles here on earth, it's almost heaven is looked at as a place of escape, right? And you can very easily turn into a Christian who is so heavenly minded, you're what? You're no earthly good. <laughs> You're just praying the Lord come back. Pray let, let the world go to hell. I don't care. I just want the Lord to come back. Very selfish, by the way, because that's not what God has instructed us to do. So it can it can look that way. It can even become that way. So we have to be careful. Um, I heard someone speaking of the state of California um, months ago, and a political person who's here in California and Christian. And, and he said, you know, it, it makes me sick to my stomach. Everybody's running away from California. I'm like, well, I'd run away too. <laughs> I mean, you know, why would you stay here? But on the other hand, he says, you know, I'm not prone to run away. I'm going to stand and fight. And I thought, wow. Uphill battle. But he explained how he'd been raised here, his parents lived here, he's got history here. And he thought, no, I'm not, gonna, I'm not just going to walk away. I'm not going to run away. I'm going to stand and fight. So sometimes the idea of having a better place to go to can kind of be an escapist mentality, and that doesn't... I'm not saying anything about anybody who has plans to move because one day we'll probably all move (laughs) to some extent. But I'm just saying we have to put it in its proper perspective. Um, Because we can also gain great strength by knowing that Jesus went and he's preparing a place for us, right? I mean, it, it gives me peace in my own heart to know that the Lord is preparing a place for me. A place of great comfort. A place of peace. A place that I will thoroughly enjoy for all eternity. You know, I've had an opportunity to talk to a lot of people who are basically at the end of their life. I mean, usually they're going to be with the Lord within days, if not hours. 
And some of them have had to endure great, horrific suffering in the face of death, physically mostly. I remember I asked one dear brother, I said, man, after everything you've been through, after everything, do you still love Jesus? Do you still love Jesus? Here you are laying in bed, dying of cancer. You have no ability even to help yourself. And through all the, all the suffering, and I've asked several people that question, by the way, in 201, those who have claimed Christ have always said, yes, yeah, so yes, of course. And you know what? I long to be with him. I am so anxious for him to take me home. I'm ready. See, the death of a Christian, it's not like the death of an unbeliever. The Christian knows where they're going, where their hope is. He's sure of a heavenly home. That's what Jesus is trying to convey to them here. Look, I'm preparing a place for you. That's why the life of a Christian shouldn't be like the life of an unbeliever either. Because we know our destiny. We know that one day we will again see Christ in his heavenly home. And that should give us motivation to live for him now. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. But our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. It's in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. John also reiterates that in 1 John chapter 3. He says, Dear friends, verse 2, Now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. Uncertainty. But we know that when he appears, what? We shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. See, to know our destiny is great, gives us great incentive to live for Christ each day. But thirdly, he talks of a personal dwelling. He's going to prepare a place. He is going to prepare a place. It sounds similar like the second one, but think of it this way. He's actually working on it. You know, we focus on the place. (laughs) But I think we should be focusing on the idea that he's preparing it. He's preparing it for you. He's preparing it for me. You know, it's a personal thing. It's a, it's a relationship that will continue for all eternity. I mean, have you ever prepared a room for someone who's maybe coming to live with you or coming to visit? If it's kids, maybe you, you decorate it in a certain way. 
Maybe you, you know, if it's a boy, you have sporting stuff. If it's a girl, you have whatever. If it's grandma or grandpa, you make sure it's as far away from the kids' rooms as possible so they can get sleep. And, you know, you, you prepare it. That's what Jesus is doing now for us. It says that he's preparing a place for us, a personal dwelling. And then the fourth and fifth points are kind of together, really. It says that Jesus is going to return. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I'll be back for you. I'm not going to abandon you. It may feel like that right now, but hang in there. First Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us for the Lord himself, verse 15, or verse 16, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and after this we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will ever be with the Lord forever. I mean, there's comfort in that. There's great comfort in that. That's why Paul says, encourage each other with those words. Jesus is returning again for those who have left behind. And from that point on, we're going to be with him forever. So what's a Christian to do when the world he knows falls apart? What's he to do in the great day of trouble? The answer is simple. The answer is to take himself by the hand and by a deliberate exercise of the mind in which he brings great truths to bear and to remembrance, to prayerfully increase his faith in God. He's to remind himself and to meditate upon God's great strength and his promises of care for us. Jesus did not say to his disciples, you know, mull over your problems, worry about your problems. He didn't even say, tell me about the problems. He wasn't even concerned about the problems. But what's he say? He says, don't be troubled by your present state of affairs. Because we have every reason to have our hope, our trust, in a God who cares for us, who knows exactly what he's doing, even though sometimes we scratch our heads. God has a purpose and a plan, and he will carry it out. Amen? Amen. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your sovereign hand. Thank you for your grace, your mercy. We thank you, Lord, that we can have faith in you because of your grace, the gift of salvation that you have given to us. Lord, Our hearts are concerned. We can't pretend they're not. Our hearts are anxious. But, Lord, our trust needs to be ultimately in you and in your care and your concern for us. And so, Father, we pray that justice would be done. If there's injustices, that they would be made evident. But, Lord, that your will would be done even concerning this election. We thank you and pray for any here who today who have yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. Lord, I pray that they would understand that a relationship with the Lord is a very real thing. It's not something pie in the sky. It's something that gets us through each and every day. And so, Father, I pray that you would personally draw them to yourself.
convict them of their own sin before a holy God. We all have sin. We've all fallen short of God's glory. And we need to put our faith and trust in the sacrifice of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty of our sin on Calvary. And we need to cry out to you for mercy, for forgiveness. Turn from our sin to the Savior. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Father, we pray for each heart that's represented here. And Lord, we once again just pray for our nation during this time. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with one last song.